Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. Pleasure to have you on again, along again in this, the second episode of our 2021 series of podcasts. Lots going on at the REC as we head in towards the end of January. Obviously, uh, lockdown a bit longer and tighter than we might have hoped back before Christmas, but uh, lots of activity across the sector and certainly lots of activity here at uh, your REC. A couple of things to mark your card on just to look out for. Uh, this Friday's a busy day. We've got our jobs outlook coming out on the 29th uh, with the latest uh, feed in from uh, the client side of uh, uh, of recruitment. But also on that day, we've got a fantastic webinar with the Department for International Trade, which is uh, looking at trade outside of the UK, both with uh, Europe post Brexit and more globally and looking at support the support that's in place for services firms who are looking to do that, like Recruiters. We've always said that recruitment is a big export sector for the UK, and that's a great chance to really look into you know, how you might be able to expand what you're doing overseas in this new post-Brexit environment. Away from that, lots going on. We've got the first of our uh, our regular uh, regional in-focus meetings with the Northwest this uh, Wednesday on the 27th. And we're also clearly very busy with government, lots of work around getting furlough clear for supply teachers, following up on that Supreme Court pandemic insurance ruling, uh, navigating those new immigration rules, and of course, get ramping up ahead of the budget, which is expected in early March. Our view is that with the uh, uh, vaccination scheme moving ahead, moving ahead at pace um, and with a relatively robust underlying trend in the labour market, we think that the UK could be in for a really good uh, period of growth in Q2 and Q3 of this year. And it's important to make sure that the actions the government takes supports the industry to deliver high rates of job finding and helping client businesses uh, reshape into into the the place they need to be to compete in the in this new world. So lots going on. Uh, on the REC campaign side, of course, the legal helpline and uh, things like model contracts there to help you. And uh, one of the big issues coming up in April that is generating a lot of calls at the moment, and we've recently uh, relaunched a full suite of contracts as well as a wider advice on our IR35 hub about this is the tax change in the uh, in the way that the IR35 rules are enforced. And that's due to come in, of course, in April this year. And uh, to, in today's pod, we're going to take a deeper look at that. I'm delighted to welcome Martin Jackson uh, to the pod. Uh, Martin's Head of Employment Taxes and Training at Kroner TaxWise. Martin, welcome to the REC pod. Thank you very much, Neil. A lot to look forward to in April this year. That's a that's a euphemistic look forward to uh, in so many ways. But just like, why don't we just kick off and and you know lots of uh, our listeners will be familiar with IR thirty five rules and and the changes that are proposed. Of course, they've been delayed by two different chancellors for a year over the uh, the last two budgets. But um, why don't we start with just the basics of the change that is currently in law to happen in April? Yes. Okay. Well. Let's just go on a little bit of a history lesson and go back to 
9th of March 1999 then, shall we? And let's bring ourselves up to date. There's a lot of misunderstanding about IR35. It gets mixed up a lot with normal employment status and with agency regulation. So let's just separate a few things out. IR35 is a slang term. It's actually short for Inland Revenue Press Release Number 35, which happened to come out on Budget Day 1999 and was the press release that announced to the world the anti-avoidance legislation that came into effect in April 2000. So it's been around quite a while, 20 years, well, nearly 21 years. And the purpose of IR35 was intended to try and put a stop to the practice of individuals setting up their own personal service companies, what we call a PSC, and continuing to provide their personal services through a limited company. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se. It's perfectly acceptable. The the problem that HMRC uh, perceived, and the Chancellor at the time, was that it was being done by people who were just employees. So one day I would be sitting at my desk as an ordinary employee, Martin Jackson, toiling away at the grindstone. And then I set up a limited company, MJ Services Limited. And I have a word with my boss and I say, Ben, I've just set up this limited company. What I'd like you to do from now on is don't pay me, pay my limited company instead. I'll carry on doing just the same work. I'll still turn up at work every day, work nine till five, have an hour for lunch, still have the same line manager. I just don't want you to pay me. I want you to pay my limited company. Now, there's obvious advantages all round in that arrangement. Ben will be very happy because the company that employs me can pay my limited company gross, and which means it doesn't suffer any employer's national insurance. Meanwhile, of course, I'm overjoyed because it means once the money has arrived in my personal service company, I can extract it in the form of dividends on which there is no national insurance at all and a lower tax rate. Everybody wins except for the exchequer, of course. And that was what IR35 was brought in to put a stop to. And you can pretty much explain IR35 and how it works with one sentence, and that is, IR35 asks a hypothetical question. If the limited company did not exist, would the relationship between the end client and the worker be that of employer and employee? So, Here I am, I've set up MJ Services Limited, and I propose to carry on doing exactly the same work that I was doing beforehand as just an ordinary individual. So when we ask that hypothetical question, if my limited company did not exist, would the relationship between the end client, that's the company for whom I am providing the services, Krona tax-wise in my case, and the worker, that's me, 
be that of employer and employee? And of course, the answer is yes. I was an employee yesterday. I'm doing exactly the same thing today. If that limited company didn't exist, I'd still be an employee. IR35 then steps in and says, right, if that is the case, then your personal service company, Martin, is responsible for putting all the money you receive from that contract through and charging PAYE and national insurance, putting it through the payroll. There's a bit of a complicated calculation for what we call the deemed direct payment, but that's the essence of it. Just pick that, picking up on that, Martin, because I think it's quite an important point that the, the, the actual principle of the law, the principle of IR35 uh, as set out from, from 99, um, hasn't changed. I mean, the proposal that we're seeing now and which was run through in the public sector a couple of years ago is a change of definition, isn't it? It's a change in who makes the decision. The actual hypothetical question, what would that relationship be, is still exactly the same. But who is being asked the question is is what's changing. Now, for best part of 20 years, it was the personal service company itself. So me, Martin Jackson, and my company, MJ Services, decide for ourselves whether we think IR35 applies and whether we think PAYE should be applied. Now, I think most people can see straight away that there's a flaw in that arrangement. In, in The flaw being that turkeys don't generally vote for Christmas. And so, of course, personal service companies on the whole generally decided for themselves that IR35 didn't apply. And eventually, after about 17, 18 years, yes, Neil, you're quite right, the rules were changed in the uh, public sector. And we had public sector IR35. And in essence, what HMRC eventually got round to saying was, and I'm paraphrasing the legislation more than somewhat here, so forgive me, but in essence, what HMRC said was, if we can't trust the PSCs to do it right for themselves, we're going to take the decision off them and give it to someone that we do trust, us, the public sector, the public sector being mostly the civil service, of course. So the decision as to whether under this hypothetical question, the relationship would be employer and employee was taken away from the personal service company and where the end client was in the public sector the end client was responsible for deciding. And now that worked really rather well. Uh, as you might imagine, the public sector being a, a very conservative area with a small C takes the very cautious approach. And our experience in Corona tax wise has been that by and large, the public sector said if they weren't sure let's err on the side of caution and we'll assume that IR35 does apply. In fact, that got taken to some extremes. Um, we, I'm aware of a number of cases, especially with NHS trusts. I don't know why that should be specifically, but a, a number of NHS trusts went so far as to say, 
we're not even going to consider the individual case. We're just going to assume that if you're working through a personal service company, that IR35 does apply. We're not going to take the risk. The risk, of course, being that once the decision was given to the public sector client to make the decision as to whether IR35 applied, if they got that decision wrong, they were going to be liable for the PAYE and the national insurance. So they take the cautious approach. So after a couple of years of running this, HMRC quite predictably has broadened it out to the private sector. And as you quite rightly said in your introduction, Neil, it was put back a year. It was due to come in 12 months ago, but it is happening this April. And the change is a simple one in principle, and that is in the private sector, unless the end client is small, and we can define that later, but if the end client is medium or large, then it will be the end client who is responsible for making the decision as to whether IR35 applies. Now, there are, there are two definitions we need to get straight here. The, there are a definition of the client. Now, that means the person ultimately for whom the services are provided. And then we need a new definition, and that's the fee payer. Because having said that the end client has to make the decision, it's not necessarily the end client that actually has to apply the PAYE and the national insurance. Whoever actually pays my personal service company is going to be responsible for applying PAYE and national insurance. So the end client makes the decision, passes that decision, firstly, to me as the worker, and secondly, to the next person down in the chain, whoever is likely to be paying my personal service company, which, of course, is likely to be an employment agency. Which brings us to the reason we're having this discussion, of course. Exactly. And I think there's a lot to to unpick there, Martin, and thank you for that introduction. Um, fascinating, of course, that it was applied in the public sector first. And you know, yeah, I think the phrase you used was it went really rather well. And I think when, when one says that, the question that always pops into my mind is from whose perspective? <laughs> from, from the Treasury's perspective, because one of the good things about the public sector is in many ways it's a command economy for the Treasury, which is you do what we say or we take away your money. Um, so there is a, 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 a certain amount more timidity in terms of uh, and and over compliance in terms of how you deal with diktats that come from uh, Treasury or HMRC in the public sector. But equally, I think at the REC, we did see quite a lot of dislocation around that public sector introduction. We saw many uh, contractors, particularly in IT, move out of the public sector and move into the private sector. And one of the intriguing things about the change that's slated for April, of course, is we're going from the rules applying to about 20% of the economy 
to 100% of the economy with a wide range of employers, albeit not with smaller firms making the determination, making determinations which may or may not be open to challenge and certainly which will pass down potentially to an employment agency at the first step of the supply chain. But of course, we know we live in this world of MSPs and uh, and other forms of lengthy recruitment supply chains. There may be one or two or even three steps between the the body that's making the determination and the fee pair. So there's a, a another notch of complexity again for agencies as we approach this April. What do you think the big risks are to agencies in this world? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to uh, to bring that in. There are a number of risks involved. You're quite right. There is often a lengthy chain. It is not uncommon for there to be at least one employment agency and quite possibly two or three employment agencies in the chain before we even get to the personal service company. And there is a big risk in that that chain might break down. I just I have a couple of quotes for you, actually. I'd just like to go back a little, Neil. When we were talking um, there about uh, it going rather well, of course, I did mean in respect of the point of view of the Treasury. But why is it being broadened out to the private sector? I have a couple of quotes for you here. They're only short ones, but there were a couple of consultations. Uh, One was called Off Payroll Working in the Private Sector, which was back in 2018. And the consultation document has a very telling quote in it. And it says, we have estimated that only 10% of individuals working in this way apply the rules properly costing the exchequer hundreds of millions of pounds in lost revenues every year. So we've estimated that only 10% of individuals working this way is another way of saying 90% of them are doing it wrong. Uh, And then uh, there was another consultation uh, in 2019. And that one said that non-compliance with the off payroll working rules in the private sector has been growing and is expected to reach 1.3 billion a year by 2023-24. So you can see that there's a a serious driver as far as the exchequer is concerned. I'd like to point out at this stage, of course, that this um, this is Treasury words, not mine. And when I say it's going rather well, I do mean it was going well for them. But but anyway, uh, to get back to uh, to get back to the point. Yes, we have this problem with the end client making the decision, issuing what's going to be called a status determination statement, an SDS, as it's going to be uh, abbreviated to. Uh, And this SDS is going to be issued to the next person down in the chain. But as you quite rightly said, Neil, the chain may consist of several persons. So it is vitally important that each member of the chain passes the status determination statement down to the next person in the chain until eventually it reaches 
whoever is actually going to pay the personal service company because whoever is going to make that payment to the personal service company is what we call the fee payer and that's where the liability lies provided of course that they have been given the SDS. If anybody in the chain fails to pass on the SDS to the next person in the chain, whoever failed to pass it on will become liable and will be the deemed fee payer. So it's really critical to make sure that everybody's aware that if they get an SDS, if if they're not actually the fee payer themselves, they must pass it down the chain. Failure to pass it down the chain means that they will be liable. But there is another potential risk that I think is very important. And that is that if there is anyone in the chain who is not UK resident or does not have a permanent establishment in the UK, not a UK connection as the uh, legislation terms it, then the chain breaks. So, for example, if there is, let's say, an offshore agency in the chain, because, of course, HMRC can't enforce the regulations against an offshore agency, if it, if it isn't resident in the UK and doesn't have a place of business in the UK, it's outside of legal jurisdiction. So the the rules are quite, well, I wouldn't say sneaky, that's not really fair, but they're, they're carefully constructed, let us say, so that whoever is immediately above the offshore agency is the deemed fee payer. So the risk that I want to highlight is if as an employment agency you are considering contracting downwards with an offshore agency, you need to be aware that that will leave you as the fee payer and liable to operate PAYE and national insurance. And of course, one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet, but which plays into all of this is the use of payroll or umbrella companies um, as part of this chain to ultimately pay the contractor. So there's a number of inter uh, interlinking points here, aren't there, about the need for agencies to get their processes right. You know, one of the things we focus a lot on at the REC is, you know, how can you challenge backup? the chain if if the determination is wrong. Um, we certainly back in January and February last year when we thought this was coming in April, we did a lot of work at the REC with our good recruitment uh, collective to point out to employers that uh, blanket determinations were unlikely to be ver a very wise choice because, of course, unlike the public sector, there is a level more litigiousness in the private sector, and and then linking into that, the uh, the sense that this change will cause uh, contractors themselves to think about their behaviour. So another thing that we've advised 
um, members at the REC on is making sure that you have a strategy for talking to the people who are working uh, that, that who are working for you as a uh, as a critical uh, uh, part of the the plan so you know for as an agency thinking about how you're going to handle that information and the risk that Martin you've pointed out think about how you communicate to your contractors and thinking about um, interactions not just above your head up the supply chain to the end user but also through agencies in your supply chain or uh, umbrella companies and payroll companies in your supply chain all of this is really important planning uh, as we go up uh, to April and it's something that is very much on the REC's mind we have a lot of discussions with the government about the forthcoming umbrella uh, regulations which government is putting together because we actually think that's essential to making sure that what happens in the IR35 change is not a, a change which some people comply with and some people do not, creating a a competitive advantage for the uncompliant. I think that would be in no one's interest, not certainly not the Treasuries, but also not us uh, in the industry and not the, the end users. So, so much complexity here for public policy bodies, people thinking about how government does this to work through, but I think also for agencies. Uh, and Martin, I, I suppose I wanted to kind of draw us towards the end of this uh, discussion by asking, you know, are there two or three really important bits of advice that you think agencies should be thinking about as we run up to April? Yes, Neil, there are a couple. I've already mentioned one in looking at the supply chain beneath you to see if there's anybody offshore because that, that could leave you in a in an invidious position. But you mentioned the disagreement process. Well, you, indirectly, you mentioned the disagreement process. Having said that the client has to make the decision, that doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that you're going to agree with it. And you do have uh, uh, at least a shot at getting it changed. There's a, there's a couple of things that actually uh, are quite reasonable. Uh, the first is that we should see the end of blanket decisions. The legislation is written so that it requires the client to take reasonable care in coming to their conclusion and if they have failed to take reasonable care, then it will not be a valid decision leaving them liable. So as I was talking about uh, blanket decisions, straight away, that's not reasonable care. You would have an argument for saying, well, that's not a valid SDS and therefore you're still liable, Mr. Client, not me. So that's a possibility. The other is the disagreement process. Um, this is not quite such good news, but there is at least a disagreement process. It's described in the legislation as a client-led status disagreement process, which is a euphemism for HMRC aren't interested and don't want to get involved. It's your problem, mate, uh, effectively is what HMRC is saying. But at least the worker or whoever is the fee payer is entitled to object to the decision. It isn't a right of appeal to HMRC. You are objecting to the client's decision. You're entitled to go back to them and say, no, I don't agree with this. 
Um, I'd like you to look at it again, please. The status determination statement is supposed to give uh, a reason for the conclusion as to whether IR35 applies or, or, or not indeed. Um, and if you object as the fee payer, which you're entitled to do, the client has a 45-day time limit for reconsidering the case and they have to come back to you, give reasons for their conclusion or alternatively issue a revised SDS and say, yes, you're absolutely right, it doesn't apply after all. So there is some hope there, although I've got to say, uh, putting the client in charge of the status disagreement process rather than HMRC is just really HMRC washing their hands. So not overall particularly good news, but it's it's something that's there. Yeah, one of the most important things if you're a, a business organisation like the REC, Martin, is to admit that you don't win them all. And uh, I'm afraid the client-led uh, resolution process is one of the areas where we didn't manage to persuade HMRC or the Treasury that it was a bad idea. Um, I think I, I do want to um, draw out though the point you made about blanket determinations because I think there's a massive risk of uh, client firms going for blanket determinations, even despite the language. So one of the things agencies can do at this stage in terms of preparing the way is making sure that you have that conversation with client businesses that say, actually, a blanket determination is is going to expose you to some legal risk. Um, not obviously necessarily from us, but it, it would be a misstep. And there's some quite robust REC content around, including a video from me uh, that you can use to show it's uh, that that's a, a, a an industry view. So lots of prep to do before April, uh, Martin, thinking about supply chain, thinking about having that good relationship with clients around making sure the SDS is done with reasonable care, thinking about uh, talking to contractors about the change that's coming. I just want to finish with a question that is most common right now to us at the REC, which is, is it going to be delayed again? What's your take on that? No. Very clear, well, straight to I, the I, point. Yes, I, I, unfortunately, um, I think it's extremely unlikely that it would be delayed again because the legislation has already had royal assent. We have... Uh, we have the Finance Act 2020, uh, we have the schedule which has put the worker services provided through intermediaries into legislation. It is already law. So if they wanted to delay it, they would have to pass new law to delay it. It wouldn't be a case of, oh, let's just hold off on the legislation. They would have to go back to Parliament and undo an act that has already been given royal assent. So I, I've got to say, even in even in these COVID times, the chances of that happening at this late stage, I'm afraid, are slim to negligible. Well, that's really clear, Martin, and I think very helpful because the message that certainly we want to get out to REC members is you've got to get your prep done. I know that's what you're telling people from corner tax-wise as well. Uh, REC members can access the our IR35 hub on the website. We've redone all the contracts uh, for for members to, to use to be compliant with the new law, and we are running a series of IR35 seminars through the spring that members can come along to to learn more uh, as part of our commitment. Martin, 
thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really fascinating to walk through all of this uh, with you. Where can people find out a little bit more about Kroner TaxWise? Uh, yes. Well, as it happens, Kroner TaxWise has a helpline. So there's a telephone number, which is 0844 and uh, there is also our website of course which is chronotaxwise.com super and we know we really value the close working relationship that the REC's had with Kroner for for many years including uh, having the chance to welcome you along today thank you for joining us Mark You're very welcome. And thank you to all of you for joining us on this edition of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Uh, If you've enjoyed this one, uh, why not check out the first of our 2021 series, episode one of 2021 with myself and Lorraine Laryi, the Recruitment Standards Director here at the REC, as we take a check-in on the two big battles recruitment's fighting right now, one against COVID-19 and one again uh, against our understanding of the Brexit deal and how we move forward from there. It's a great listen and well worth your time. And on the same site, you can find the back catalogue of all of the pods from 2020, which are full of really good uh, interviews and examples uh, from recruitment leaders to thought, inspirational thought leaders in fields like AI and technology and recruitment, but also uh, from uh, from our own team looking at how the the market is reshaping as we hope as we get in towards the summer that we're going to have a much more positive 2021. Thank you all for joining us, and I'll look forward to you joining us again on another episode of the REC Pod. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon, and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, so subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.